Okay, so tonight I'd like to continue exploring this theme of right or wise action that Margie so beautifully introduced us to last week. And just beginning with that right here, we have wise action in action by all of you showing up tonight, coming together as a group to explore these teachings, these practices that support what's good what's beneficial, what's kind, compassionate and wise. And so, as I mentioned, it's Vesak and it's a time of uh, special attention, you could say, celebration and in many traditions, recommitment to this path, which aims towards the good. And so, in this exploration of wise action tonight, I'm going to start with what might be a big assumption, but the assumption that all of us here, to some degree, have a commitment to non-harming. And that commitment to non-harming is basically what underlies wise action. It's really the root, the foundation of this whole path of practice. So on its most basic level, wise action is about refraining from killing living beings, refraining from stealing, and refraining from misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm. That's the most basic definition of what this path factor includes. But as we know from all of our earlier explorations of the teachings, the more we investigate, the more they open up layers and layers of refinement and nuances and subtleties. So just to say another big assumption, I'm going to assume that most of us here, most of the time, are not going around intentionally killing, stealing, and misusing our sexual energy. Which is not to say there might not be aspects of all that that we could improve on. But because we're in the terrain of ethics now, just acknowledging that for some people this whole area can bring up, you know, conditioning. Even if we weren't brought up in any particular religious tradition, I think we, the underlying Judeo-Christian influences in our society, they can leave an imprint and often that imprint is one of black and white rules quite moralistic thinking around concepts of good and bad and saint and sinner and heaven and hell and along with that perhaps feelings of anxiety or guilt or judgment or unworthiness or shame so it's important to keep in mind that in Buddhism the emphasis in terms of ethics is on happiness rather than punishment. So it's not about going to hell if we make a mistake, but understanding that when we're oriented towards non-harming, our lives tend to flow much more smoothly. I think all of us have had that experience. Is that fair to say? That when we're caught up in all kinds of afflictive states, tends to magnify and compound and we create more harm to others and to ourselves but when we're in the flow of non-harming 
things tend to go more smoothly, more easily, there's more cooperation and so on. As a basic statement, does that ring true for people? So, you know, it's, it's what we call enlightened self-interest to be orienting to non-harming because it brings about more ease and happiness. And so the way these path factors are laid out, we start with wise view, which is that understanding that actions have consequences, that there are the results from what we think and say and do. And when we understand that, then we naturally start to incline towards kindness and compassion, relinquishment and generosity. And then because those are the, start to be more the underlying motivations, what comes out of our mouths tends to be more in the terrain of wise speech too. So speech that's generally grounded in kindness and so forth. So in that late sequence, there's a, a shift you could say from the broad underlying motivations into the heart and then into our actions, our behavior in the world. So there's a shift from our subtle internal activity to what we actually do, how we behave out there. And in the Buddha's understanding, there's also increasing karmic weight in that chain. So karma is the understanding that whatever we do will have consequences based on the heart quality that motivated it. So thoughts have less karmic impact than if we verbalize them and put them out there. And speech has less karmic impact than our physical actions and our behavior. But, as we all know, how do actions even happen? How does speech even happen without some thought, intention in the mind? So that's why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on mental training. And so we have the last path factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise samadhi. So I want to highlight, as I think we've all been discovering, how each of these eight path factors is really supported by all the others. And what makes wise action wise is that it is supported by wise view, by wise intention. And at the other end of the path, by wise effort, mindfulness, and samadhi. And I think, you know, I made the point perhaps before that in the West, at least, most people come to meditation with some sense that meditation is going to change their life. But they don't often recognize that actually we need to change our lives in order to meditate more fully and to get the real depth and benefit of this practice. And as mindfulness becomes more mainstream, and you know, and sometimes it's presented almost like you just wave this magic wand of mindfulness a few times through the day, and then you should be able to develop the same benefits. <clears throat> but if we look at what we're doing in all the rest of our lives, it has an impact. Meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we really need to be aware of our actions through the entire day to help support those meditative qualities. So this is how Greg Kramer describes that conditioning effect. 
He says the defining principle of right action and of ethics generally is the evaluation of actions in terms of their clearly visible effects. It's not about applying an arbitrary moralism. The ethical question is always, do the effects of this action work towards the full spectrum of my well-being and that of others, or against that? And he says many effects are obvious, but others are subtle. Some are evident immediately, and some take time to mature. And he says actions are relevant to individual suffering because actions condition the mind, and they condition the world that conditions the mind. And they do this by means of the intentions they realize and the mind states that they reinforce. So this direct conditioning happens with every action of mind and body. So drinking a couple of beers with friends or swatting an insect or making provocative gestures, even little actions bear fruit. All thoughts and images and emotions bring up associated thoughts and images and emotions and numerous internal body-mind feedback loops are set in motion. And with repetition, these little actions build neuronal pathways in the heart and mind, in our brains, and they trigger biochemical feedback shifts in our bodies. And these physical changes, in turn, form a substrate that reinforces our default way of being in the world. So even right now, we're shaping you know, this image of crafting the heart and mind that I've been referring to. What we're doing right now in this moment has an impact, creates pathways, conditions, responses. And this, I think, is important to keep in mind in terms of skillful qualities as well as unskillful. So because of the mind's negativity bias, I think we tend to focus more on what's painful and challenging or where we're falling short, not good enough, need to improve. But the whole of this path is about providing us with a set of approaches to positively shape our conditioning in ways that lead to happiness instead of harm. So we've already seen how these causal links play out. But it's worth paying more attention to the workings of them in the context of our own lives, Because if you're anything like me, often we don't really notice those. We don't acknowledge them. We don't register the benefits that are coming from this practice. So just to give you one specific example, you know, you might think back of a a time before you came into contact with these teachings on on Buddhist ethics. And I'm guessing there were probably things you did back then, whether it was two months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, that you thought, well, maybe that's a little bit marginal, but hey, everyone's doing it, it's not that big a deal. And then as you continued to meditate, to learn more about the teachings, you started to realize, "Mm, that's not actually that great. I think I'll just refrain from that. And then maybe later on you realize, wow, that thought pattern doesn't even come up anymore. It's just not something in my 
mental repertoire, whereas two, ten, twenty years ago was something I thought and did quite often without even realizing. So just as an example in my own life that I shared with some of you on retreat, very simple example in relation to wise action and the invitation to refrain from killing living beings. So when I first heard this, I thought, yeah, it's a good idea, it's a nice idea, maybe not that practical all the time, but yeah, in principle at least, I can get behind it. But especially when it came to insects, I was not as careful as I could have been. You know, if people were around, especially Dharma friends, I'd make a bit of an effort. Mm -hmm. But if nobody was around and there was a plague of ants or flies or something, I would do the fly spray thing. And then later on, I'd go on retreat. And I started to realize that I had this whole category of what I called inconvenient life forms. And that included slugs and spiders and snails and ants and basically all insects. But on retreat, when things slow down, and you start to move at times literally at the pace of an ant, and you're doing walking meditation with the ants, or you're wending your way through a whole field of slugs early in the morning, and your awareness gets refined, and you start to really notice those are living beings, just like me. And just like me, they don't want to be squished. And so there starts to be more sensitivity. And then I didn't even register how this process was working in me, at least not consciously, until a few years later I went to Thailand. I sat a retreat. And then afterwards we all went and stayed in some beach cottages, um, a whole bunch of foreigners. And there was one guy there who hadn't been on the retreat, but he would come and have breakfast with us every day. And one morning he started to describe how the night before there'd been this enormous centipede on the roof of his little bungalow. And he told me in great detail about the amazing bristles it had and the colors that it was and how it moved and the color of its eyes and the way it looked at him. I was really quite fascinated. I said, wow, what did you do? He said, well, I got out my Swiss army knife and chopped off its head. (laughs) And I was so shocked. I I sort of almost screamed. And it was only then I realized that just would not have occurred to me as a response at that point. Whereas two years ago, I don't know, maybe I would have, I don't think I'd chopped its head off, but I might have (laughs) done something else unskillful to it. So we might not realize just how much these changes are happening incrementally. And I wanted to use that as a starting point just for a group exploration of how we might acknowledge the positive changes that are happening as a way way of actually countering that negativity bias I mentioned earlier that tendency to see towards self-judgment and to see where we slip up and don't get it right. And instead, to acknowledge all the many areas where we're doing not just okay, but even, you know, if we could compare to mainstream population, might be actually doing quite well. 
So I'm going to invite us into an exploration of that, not as a way of like taking ownership of, oh, I'm such a great person and I've got this, you know, you know not sort of using this as an exercise in puffing ourselves up, but just to own, to acknowledge, to recognize the positive benefits that we're receiving here that have come from taking in these teachings and come from the mutual support that we have with each other. Okay, so thank you for your kind attention. Let's just...